Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 99. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The benefits of not quitting is probably often understated in life. And our guest this episode, Bill Curry, fully understands how not quitting can change your path in life. Coach Curry, as he's simply known, would embark on a football journey that would lead him to playing for some of the greatest coaches the game has ever seen. After playing for Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech, he would play for Vince Lombardi with the Green Bay Packers, as well as Don Shula with the Baltimore Colts. After winning two Super Bowls and being named to the Pro Bowl twice, he would begin his college coaching career with stops at Georgia Tech, Alabama, Kentucky, and would help build the program at Georgia State. A two-time SEC Coach of the Year and National National Coach of the Year in 1989, Coach Curry would also spend over a decade as a college football commentator for ESPN. And there's no rest for Coach Curry, as you can still find him delivering messages of team building, love, and leadership. Here's episode 99 with Bill Curry. Coach Curry, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it, and I would have to say, and you look fantastic. Well, thank you look you. better shaped than I am. Well, no, you're in a lot. That is not true. Now you, oh yes, you're it is. in great shape. But thank you. That that's something that um, I've got a, a I've got a lot of wonderful doctors. Unfortunately, I need all of them. <laughs> but one in particular, my neurologist, just stood me up in front of my spine one day. He said, "This is the X-ray of your spine. You see this? This is." That's the, not a good neck. Uh, and down here at the bottom, you see this right here, Bill? I said, yeah, I see that, doctor. He said, gain 50 pounds and you'll never walk again. Do you understand? I said, I believe I got it. Yes. You so, got it. So I do train, and uh, thank you for noticing. Yeah. So what's your regimen then? What do you do? How to stay in shape? Um, now, I, I'm neither bragging nor complaining, but I have had five shoulder replacements. I, w- I was always the smallest lineman, and my shoulders just weren't suited for the National Football League, but I love playing, and I played a long time, and I, I would do it again. Um, what everybody's wondering, would, would that nut go back out there? Yes, I would. But one time, my, my brilliant shoulder doctor um, said to me, uh, "This you're going to lose a lot of blood, and I'm not going to do a transfusion because I don't want to risk bad blood at your age. And so you're going to be real weak after this surgery. And I thought, yeah, right. I'm super. Yeah, you're a man. I recover so fast. And I do. I've got, I'm blessed with good genes. Um, I recover quickly from injuries and I always have. Good, good thing to have if you're going to play our sport. But uh, this time he was right. I could hardly get around. I was so weak. And for about six months, I wallowed around in self-pity, thinking, well, gosh, how long is it going to take for my blood to regenerate? And I bumped into a guy that was in his mid-50s. He had 5% body fat. He had washboard abs. And he was a ferocious trainer, owner of a very successful company. He employed me as a speaker several times, and I appreciated that. So I said, what have you been doing? And so I got his regimen, and it's... uh, very rapid, uh, cardiovascular, stimulating 
uh, weightlifting. And my father had been a weightlifter, a national champion, and I had rebelled against <laughs> weights because <laughs> Pop used to make me lift when I was young. Uh, so I had stopped. I had stopped lifting completely. I went back in the weight room. I do. I do a lot of reps, a lot of leg presses, a lot of um, the only upper body exercises I can do are shrugs and curls and uh, pull downs. But I do them fast and I get winded and do the cardiovascular. And I've been doing that for about two years and it works. And I recommend it. And people my age, I'm in my I'm 76 now. Uh, if you can do those things, you should be doing them. 76. That's amazing. I mean, uh, again, you look absolutely fantastic well, to be 76. Thank and you. I want to be looking like you, and I'm 76, so uh, I need to get that regimen from you. That's a wonderful compliment. Thank <laughs> For you. sure. So when you think about 76 years old, and I know you've shared your journey to a certain degree before, but go back all the way to the earliest days of this love of football and how it began for you. <laughs> I hated football. I didn't even watch football. Not only did I not want to go out, I didn't want to watch it. I, look, I, was go I had two goals in life. Number one, Mary Carolyn Newton. This is about 12 years old. <laughs> Mary Carolyn Newton, the most beautiful girl in the world and the smartest kid in College Park, Georgia. Number two was to pitch for the New York Yankees. And we got this funny thing at our house, this little contraption with a screen like that and some rabbit ears. When I was 10 years old, it was called television. <laughs> and it had these little garbled uh, figures running around. And the first thing I remember seeing was the World Series. Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Elston Howard. Mickey Mantle was a rookie when I was 11 years old. I was hooked. And so I became a little league pitcher. And I had a gracious manager that let me come out there. I wasn't good enough to be on his team, but he took me anyhow. And I got to where I could pitch a little bit. And I just thought, That's, these are the things I'm going to do. And um, only one thing kept me out of the majors in baseball. What's that? Talent. <laughs> That's but something I, big. You I have to have. And as for the uh, Carolyn Newton, she wouldn't speak to me for six years because I was always in trouble I was short and fat and mean, and uh, but um, I grew about a foot during high school. We started dating when we were seniors, and December the 15th, we'll have our 56th anniversary. Congratulations. So, thank you. I was 50% successful on my goals, but somewhere along the way, I got dragged onto the football field because in College Park, Georgia in 1955, I'm serious about this, if you wanted to get a date, you had to be on the football team. And so I stumbled into the locker room for the, all the wrong reasons. Um, it was a nightmare. We're in College Park, Georgia. It's 102 degrees, no air conditioning, awful equipment hanging on from, from pipes and stuff, the stench. You could smell it two blocks away, riding your bike to practice at six o'clock in the morning. You could smell the locker room. The CDC could do studies of the cultures <laughs> that developed in those nasty uniforms, and they could have spent a decade just finding out what grows in the locker And we put that stuff on our bodies. We went out on the field. The coaches started blowing a whistle, and we started running into each other. Now, if I can stand 60 feet, six inches from you and throw something at you, why do I want to run into you? <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I was scared. I was chicken. And I decided, as I usually did when things were hard at that age, I'm going to quit. I'm just going to. 
I'm not doing this. They're, they're all nuts. And I had buddies that loved it. They loved going to practice. I thought these guys were saying they're out of their minds. This ridiculous sport, I'm out of here. I'm thinking about how I'm going to turn my equipment in, and it hit me. i got a problem. Quitting thing, you see, because my father lived at our house. And you didn't quit anything if you lived in Major W.A. Curry's house. United States Infantry, hand-to-hand combat instructor, national weightlifting champion. He said, now, I didn't make you go out there. He did not. He didn't make me go out. He said, but you're out there. You're not going to, you're not going to let your buddies down. No. Guys are counting on you. You're going to stay. You're going to see this through. And then it got worse because they assigned me the position that nobody wanted to play, offensive center. I remember Coach Shattuck saying, well, Bill, I guess you're going to have to learn to hike that ball. I thought, no kidding, no kidding, Shattuck. Somebody's <laughs> got to hike it. Oh, let's think about this. we got this 13 pounds per square inch oblate spheroid, really hard, and you want me to put it on the ground, spread my legs, and pull it up right there <laughs> hard as I can? Are you kidding me? And Tommy Fields, our quarterback, is going to put his hands where on me? No. I mean, Coach. Let's, yeah, no, thank you. Let's, let's discuss this. This is a complex transaction we're <laughs> contemplating here. I don't want to hike a football. Who wants to hike a football? Worst thing that could have happened for short, fat, lazy Bill Curry, right? Wrong. Here's where football starts to take hold in a young psyche and make all the difference. Four years later, at Georgia Tech, I learned to hike that ball of Billy Lothridge, a Heisman Trophy runner-up. At the end of my senior year in the Senior Bowl, I learned to hike that ball to Joe Willie Namath. And a few months later, I learned to hike that ball to Roger Staubach and John Hewitt and Bob Timberlake and Craig Morton. And the week after that, I learned to hike that ball to Bart Starr and Zeke Ratkowski. And three years later, I learned to hike that ball to Johnny Unitas and Earl Morrill. And then later, on different occasions at different teams, I learned to hike that ball to Bob Greasy and Dan Pastorini and James Harris and Daryl LaMonica, and the greatest generation of leaders in our sport in the history of the game, only because the position of offensive center exists. There was no other position in all of sport that would have allowed Bill Curry to have a career other than offensive center. So if you think you're in a bad spot, try doing it as hard as you can. You may not have a choice. Thank God for my father and my coaches at every step along the way, and my teammates, and I've had so many great teammates and so many, I mean, what you see around the walls here are my coaches and my teammates and my family, and they have loved me unconditionally when I least deserved it. And I wouldn't have been there had there not been such a position as offensive center. When was it the moment, though, then that it became a love? When did I really start to love playing football? Good question. And most people don't pin me down on that because it it wasn't during high school. I mean, I liked the games. I never did like practicing in high school. Then at Georgia Tech, I was more worried about a chemistry lab or a calculus final than, honestly, we were. I mean, we had Saturday morning classes. When we were there, and and my NFL buddies always thought this was a lie, but we'd have calculus and statistics on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock and play Alabama at 2 o'clock. And you better be in those classes because we had a coach named Bobby Dodd. If you didn't go to class, he loved you. He would, he would, even if you weren't a very good player, he would keep you around. You cut class 
you would run up and down those stadium steps till you were gagging and just loving chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's what happened to me. So uh, it was such a strain to do the academic stuff and try to progress. I didn't play a, a, a I didn't start a game at Georgia Tech till the fourth game of my fourth year. It took me forever to mature enough just to get on the field at Tech. Um, I'll tell you when I fell in love with it. Um, the Green Bay Packers, my first two years, we were world champions both years. And the second year, I was a starter because Ken Bowman got hurt. But it was that was a grind also. When I took the field for Don Shula with the Baltimore Colts after I was traded over there. There was something about the chemistry and the magic of Shula and his staff, great assistant coaches. John Sandusky was one. Red Miller was another one. George Young, who later became general manager of the Giants. George was one of our line coaches. Those guys were so great. I couldn't wait to get to work every day. And that's when I fell in love with practicing. And that's when I played football with all my heart the best I ever could play it. I wanted to be like the great all pros, you know. And so I, I set my goal. I want to see if I can play football like Ray Nitschke or like Jerry Kramer. Well, I tried for that. It never happened because they're Hall of Famers and I'm not. But what did happen is that I became the best player Bill Curry could be because of those wonderful coaches. They just kept working and kept working with me. And So the answer to your question, I was about 25 years old before I actually fell in love with it, and then I couldn't wait to get to work every day. And then that's when you just fully embraced it. Yeah. And at that point, did it get to a certain situation where, as you mentioned, that you couldn't wait to get to work, but also just from a career perspective that it was like, I want to do this the rest of my life? Yeah, and there's an unhealthy component because at the point I became obsessed with uh, being the best player I could be and I was actually being recognized as being a reasonable player. I mean, I was starting every game on one of the best football teams of all time, um, those late 60s Colts. Even the, the team that lost to the Jets was probably the best team I played on and is definitely one of the best two or three teams in the history of football. But nobody's going to remember that because we lost the game we could not afford to lose. And the Jets deserved to win that day. But um, um, for my love of the game, I became so obsessed that I um, slipped as a human being and as a husband and as a father and the football became too important. And that's what happens to a lot of us. And I let that dominate for way too long. And I thank God that my wife didn't kill me or run me off at the time. <laughs> so and speaking of Carolyn. Wonderful Carolyn Curry. Yeah. That's right. So speaking of Carolyn, I know you'd mentioned it took you a while for her to agree to go out on a date. So was it the fact that you were now playing in high school that she agreed? Oh, you're a football player now. No, now was, I'll go. I was just persistent. <laughs> I asked her. I, I tease her all the time. I said, why'd you... All right, okay, you, weren't, you wouldn't speak to me when we were in the sixth grade, and I said I was going to marry you. What happened? You know, all of a sudden, when I was a senior, you'd go out with me. She said, you grew a foot. That's one thing that happened. <laughs> so you got taller. She, yeah. she had a height requirement. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but uh, We've had a wonderful, wonderful marriage, and we've got two great kids and seven incredible grandchildren, each of whom is brilliant and beautiful. That's an objective viewpoint. Of course it is. <laughs> That's right. 
When you mentioned all of those different quarterbacks that you learn to snap a ball to, and I know there's a fundamental essence of this is how you snap a ball, but what about did each quarterback say, hey, Bill, I need you to snap it this way. This is the way I like it. Yeah, every one of them was different. And we didn't have gun snaps in those days. Thank goodness. I think for a smaller center, a gun snap would be a disadvantage because uh, what I learned as the years progressed is that I knew the snap count and Merlin Olson didn't. <laughs> Joe Green didn't. Dickon Jones didn't know the snap count. I did. And that was my only advantage. I think if I'd had to do the more polished movement of the gun snap, it might have been harder. I, I, I'm not sure about that, but um, you have to have the center quarterback exchange drill is the first drill in every practice. If you go watch anybody practice that has a decent team, first thing that happens is centers and quarterbacks get on the side and they, they work on the center quarterback QB exchange because obviously without that, nothing else is going to happen, nothing good for the offense. So um, every single one of them was different. I even had some good buddies who taught me how to snap to an NFL quarterback. Francis Tarkington was a, a very good friend of mine uh, at that time. We used to go on vacation together, and he'd say, Bill, the way you're, you're lined up in your stance, NFL quarterbacks are not going to let you do that. So you've got to learn to extend here and there, and here's where you put. And he taught me what to do. And so I just, I just got lucky. Every t- everywhere I turned, there was somebody to help me. Well, I don't know if it was luck. Well, I think there's proximity. Yes. <laughs> and so again, I, I'm still in fascinated that you really didn't fall in love with the game until much later. Because a, a lot of athletes talk about they've loved you know the sport for a long period of time. So from your perspective, then when you're at Georgia Tech, and so why even try to go to the NFL if you didn't really love the game? I had no at that intention. Point? I, I didn't think I was going to the NFL. Neither did anybody else. Yeah. So how did that happen? I was a 212-pound offensive center on an average Georgia Tech team my junior year, and. Um, my phone rang early one morning. I was so clueless. Uh, I didn't know they were having a draft. I didn't know the NFL had a draft. I did not know. Now imagine no that. clue at all. No, no. Did not know they were holding a draft. Did <laughs> not know they had one. Didn't care. Um, and the phone rings, and it's my brother-in-law, Carolyn's little brother, Ronnie. And he says, hello, Green Bay Packer. I hung up on him, I think. I mean, he was He's very clever. He's always messing with me. He called back. He said, boy, you better get a newspaper. The Packers have drafted you in the 20th round. Well, the NFL had 20 rounds in the draft in those days. And uh, I went and got the paper, and sure enough, I had never gotten a letter or a phone call from the Green Bay Packers. Nothing at all. Nothing. And there I was, the 20th round selection. Lombardi had turned to his personnel man, who loved to tell this story. And he said, Pepler, Pat Pepler was his name. It's two in the morning. We've drafted 19 players. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. Do something humorous for the 20th selection. <laughs> so they did. And um, I had another year of college. And in those days, most people drafted as a future went ahead and played their senior year in college. And I certainly needed to do that. And I did. And then um, became... Um, very intrigued with the possibilities because the Packers handled it so cleverly. Um, the last game of my college career was in Athens against Georgia. 
and we got beat in the rain, seven to nothing. Um, we're coming off the field, and standing on the sideline is Red Cochran. Well, he's an assistant with the Green Bay Packers. I mean, a real assistant, not a scout. I mean, one of the guys you see on the sideline on Sunday afternoons. He's standing there, and he said, Bill, I'm Red Cochran. Hello. Um, I'd like to talk to you and Carolyn. Is Carolyn here? I said, yes, she's up here. She came over on a bus. So I go get a shower and get dressed and walk out, and I'm just clueless. I'm just mostly crushed because we didn't win the game. We should have should have won the game. Um, he said, I'd like to drive you both. I'd like to drive you back to Atlanta. I had been drafted by the Oakland Raiders in the other league at that time. So I didn't know at the time that they were already playing keep away. Uh, I just didn't know. I was so, again, I was so um, not just ill-informed, uninformed. Uninformed, yeah. He said, I- I'd like you and Carolyn to go to dinner with me, and I want to talk to you about the Green Bay Packers. And then <laughs> I'd like you to get on an airplane tomorrow morning and fly to Dallas and watch us play the Cowboys in the Cotton Bowl. I turned to Carolyn, and Carolyn looked at me, and we said, sure, why not? <laughs> so we did. And there we are sitting with Marie Lombardi in the Cotton Bowl. We've been married less than a year. We were 20 years old. Um, it's just hard to describe. No, we were 21. We were 21. Hard to describe the emotions. And Marie Lombardi is like this angel. She was so beautiful and so sweet to us. She loved us immediately. And the Packers were really good, and the Cowboys were really young, and the Packers are killing them. So uh, they come up from the sideline in the fourth quarter and said, Bill, would you like to come down on the sideline and stand next to Coach Lombardi? I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. Well, the game is over, and Coach Lombardi turns to me, shakes hand. We're walking across. He said, come on, come on in the locker room with me. I'm walking with Vince Lombardi. And I'm a nobody from nowhere. And he says, how would you like to play for the Green Bay Packers? And I said, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> no negotiation, no, no, I know nothing. I I'll mean, sign right now. Just imagine, imagine that. So the fact that they were so clever had something to do with it. But from that moment on, it was an obsession to me to get ready and make the Green Bay Packers. What was that first day like when you are there playing on the field for Vince Lombardi with the Green Bay Packers? Well, even that was that became a, a problematic because I was in the college all-star game, as they called it in those days, in Chicago. They would take a team of college all-stars and play against the champions from the year before. And the Cleveland Browns, Jimmy Brown, was uh, it was his last year. And uh, so they got, a, and Staubach was our quarterback. We had John Hewitt and Craig Morton and Bob Timberlake, and we, we had a great team. Had Dick Butkus, Gail Sayers, Tucker Fredrickson. Um, that is an all-star team. And we, Yeah, and we really played them pretty well in the second half. I think they beat us 26 to 17, something like that. But um, so I was too late, two weeks late reporting to training camp, uh, which was all the, all the clubs understood that. But I get, I'm on a flight on um, North Central Airlines, the Blue Goose, and it stops in Milwaukee, from Chicago to Milwaukee, then to Green Bay. 
And the people come on the plane in Milwaukee, and they said, "I'm sorry, Mr. Curry, we're going to have to. You're going to have to get off the plane because your seat is filled." I said, "I beg your pardon. What do you mean?" They said, "Well, we mean you're going to get off the plane, and we'll get you on the next thing to Green Bay." So I walk in there, and they, I said, "When's the next thing to Green Bay?" And they said, "Tomorrow morning." And I said, "No, I'm due." at the Green Bay Packer training camp at 4 o'clock. And they said, well, we're very sorry. I said, well, I'd like to see the president of North Central Airlines. They, they smiled and chuckled. And <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you could get the manager, the local manager. So the guy comes out, and I was, I was just desperate. I'm trying to think of anything to say. I said, look, your name is, uh, I can't remember his name, but I, I, your name, your serial number, North Central, I, I know who you are. And I want you to understand that I am to report to the Green Bay Packers and Coach Vince Lombardi at 4 o'clock today, and I'm going to be late, and it's because of you, and I'm going to make sure he knows it. <laughs> the guy's face just drained. He went from that, <laughs> that little smile of pacify the jerk and get him out of here. He went to, uh, wait right there, Mr. Curry. He went around. I'm not making this up. He goes around the counter. He calls some people down. He sends them out to get my bags off the big plane. He charters a single-engine plane. They fly me to Manitowoc, put me on a North Central van, and drive me to De Pere, Wisconsin, where the Packer training camp was being held. And I walked in 15 minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> All because of Vince Lombardi's power. That's the power of in his that name, of yeah. course. So everything was like a Hollywood drama, everything. It was, it was just unbelievable. And when you now look back, what did you enjoy more, coaching or playing? More and more people are asking me that, and I'm embarrassed at the answer uh, because I enjoyed playing selfishly. Uh, I enjoyed playing more because I was only responsible for one person's performance, not a hundred teenage males. <laughs> but I love my hundred teenage males, and I love them to this day, and I hear from them every day. That's amazing. I hear from somebody 360, let's say 355 days a year, I hear from one or more of my guys. And I love that like my family. But as the, the selfish part of getting to go out and line up against the greatest football players of all time, see if I could block Merlin Olson. Not very often. That's what I. But but to try. But you try. Try to block Joe Green, um, Deacon Jones. I mean, it was the, it was so thrilling to work so hard all week and see if you can get a game plan. See if you can figure out a way to take your meager little body and pound it into the greatest players of all time and see if you could compete and earn their respect. And um, that that was a thrill that um, that will well it lasts a lifetime. Do you have any regrets from your playing days, oh, coaching wow. days? Yeah, I have a lot of regrets. My main re regret is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, I got so obsessed with my performance and later at the performance of my teams that I didn't spend as much time with my family as I should have. And um, I'm trying to make up for it. That's a process. Yeah. Right. The grandchildren give me a great chance at that, but... And my children have for, forgiven me, but um, it's been some tough times because um, there's no excuse for it. None. It was all my fault.
And so what are you trying to do then to seek that forgiveness? Or what did you try to do? I'll send them cash and <laughs> gifts. And <laughs> no. Um, I've written a lot of letters. Um, we've had long, hard conversations about, and I thought we were fine because uh, uh, I took them to all the games and our daughter was in the press box and our son was on the sideline with me and I thought, hey, we're cool. But he played a lot of little, little league games and I wasn't there. And uh, as he's grown older, now he has five redheaded boys living at his house. He has, he's become very understanding. <laughs> um, and our daughter has two daughters and uh, both of them have been wonderful. And Carolyn uh, forgave me a long time ago. She's, she was so sold out. She was such a great team mom. Um, and when you count ESPN, I did 11 years of ESPN, 20 games a year. And she taped all of them and went to as many as she could with me. It's interesting. She, was, she wasn't interested in going to Starkville, Mississippi. But when we did the Hula Bowl in Maui, <laughs> she always found time. She would sign we, up yes, for that one. I think I can go over there. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so we kind of enjoyed that, too. But we have, And she was captain of the cheerleaders when I played in high school. We have done, full-time, over 700 football games. And she loves football, too. So it wasn't quite as much an issue with her as it was the kids. Yeah, just because they But I would, I would love to have that things. back because I could, have, I could have reallocated practice times. I could have been at more of their functions, and I just didn't. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I think you and I have a common thread on is just the impact of sports and what it means to people and how it's intertwined in leadership so why is that so important to you, to being able to spread that message, especially when it seems like right now in society, we can be so divided at times, but what sports does to bring us together? My wife is a scholar and a historian, a PhD in history. Um, she'll watch a political figure and she'll say, um, he never played a team sport. I know exactly what she's talking about because you can't be a racist and step into a huddle anymore. The guys will call you out. You can't be a sexist and be a part of a quality football operation. The top, I mean, all the football operations now have females involved in the training room, in the front office, very often in the equipment room, and they're head trainers. They're not just um, makeup jobs. They are real so everybody's important. And Vince Lombardi and Don Shula's greatest attribute in both cases was that they would not allow prejudice. There was no such thing as racism on our team, and everybody knew it. So you were expected to learn to love the guys, whether you started out loving them or not. And for the teams who win and win and win, there are a lot of differences, a lot of different styles, a lot of different formations, offenses, defenses, etc. But the one thing they have in common is a bunch of guys who refuse to let each other down. And when you got that, it is so much fun to run on that field. And when did you feel that you were truly part of that first team, the Green Bay Packers? 
<laughs> probably when I first, when I got knocked out being the wedge buster running, <laughs> running into Jim Parker. Uh, I, I, it's not, it's a bit of a fear, but I tell the story of, I'm, I was a wedge buster on the kickoff coverage because if you played for Bobby Dodd, you learn how to play on special teams. And so that was a huge advantage. I was a long snapper. It's probably the only reason I made the team, but I was expected to be the wedge buster and Baltimore Colts had a guy named Jim Parker that was an offensive lineman. It, at the time, I did not know he was the top off, the greatest offensive lineman of the first 75 years in the NFL. He weighed about 8 million pounds and he was fast and he was quick. Uh, and he was number 77 and I saw him in the middle of the field and I just took off running and ran full speed into the, he was number 77. I hit him right between the sevens and that's the last thing I remember. Um, <laughs> And uh, somebody walked by me and nudged me with their foot and said, we don't waste timeouts carrying rookies off the field. So I crawled off the field. And uh, then the, the joke part of this that's not quite true is I go to a teammate, Junior Coffee, and say, man, I'm blinded in my left eye. He said, turn your headgear around. You're looking out the ear hole, buddy. <laughs> that's how it felt. I think about that moment I realized what the NFL was really about. So it was different. It was so different. Yeah. And what about the differences between Coach Lombardi and Coach Shula? Well, they they were both great human beings. I hated Lombardi when I was there, and I said so after I left, and I'll regret that all my life. I had to go to his um, hospital and beg his forgiveness, which he granted, which proved that his priorities really were what he claimed, your religion, your family, and the Green Bay Packers, because he forgave me when I least deserved it. I've never forgotten that. But Don Shula understood me, and he understood all of us. His greatest gift, I think, was the capacity to build relationships with each player so that not only did we play for each other and to win the game, but we played for him. Um, my first game with the Colts, he thrilled me to death. He made me special teams captain. Like I said, Coach Dodd taught us to play special teams. So I'm walking out with John Unitas for the coin toss. And um, wow, big deal. We were playing the Falcons. And about the middle of the third quarter, I clipped a guy right in front of our bench on an 80-yard punt return. So the punt return is called back. Shula runs on the field, grabs me by the shoulders, shakes me, and screams, profanity that would have made Lombardi proud. Well, if you come across the white lines in the NFL, they're not any nice guys. So I screamed profanity right back in my head coach's face without thinking as usual. So Tuesday morning, we're watching the film and the, uh, John Sandusky, the assistant coach said, Curry, is that a clip? I said, it might be. He said, well, let me make a suggestion. Next time, you decide to dog cuss the head coach on national television, you make very sure it's not a clip. <laughs> so I'm thinking, Carolyn's flying in with our five-week-old baby girl, and I'm going to be cut after one game with the Baltimore Colts. Did you really fear that? I really did. I wouldn't have blamed him. I went and found him. He took me in the equipment room, and I said, Coach, um, I'm so sorry. I was out of line. Uh, you crossed the white line. You told us when we crossed the white line, we don't have to be nice to anybody, but 
I shouldn't have done that, and uh, and I promise you it'll never happen again. You know what he did? He smiled. You know what he said? I kind of like that. <laughs> Just don't clip the guy. And, I mean, we would kill for him. I would have played my, I mean, when somebody understands you and gives you that kind of reprieve, and you think about getting your head across the front and not clipping people. And he said, we're going to be the least penalized but the most aggressive team in the NFL. And that's exactly what happened. And nobody could beat us. Same thing with Lombardi. Nobody could beat us. And we weren't always happy with when they put the hammer down on us, but we loved getting those Super Bowl rings in the mail. Uh, Obviously so. Those were some dominant teams for sure. And you mentioned the impact that you've had in terms of you still have players reach out to you consistently and also just – what you've been able to do for other coaches as well, like a Dabo Sweeney, just the words that you, you know, shared with him on a napkin. How does that make you feel? You know about that too. I do, yes. So I, Dabo tells everybody. Yes, he does. And it's a great story. And so just knowing that the impact that you've had like that, how, how do you feel about Well, it's a great story that? because Dabo's a great person. I put notes in other people's hands that didn't respond the way Dabo has. Dabo's just got such a a powerful uh, force toward good and toward excellence that he can do what he does with his team is like nobody else I have ever seen, including Lombardi and Shula, certainly not Bill Curry. He gets those guys to win virtually every game, and they have fun. They actually have fun. How do you do in this? Davos got a sliding board in his. Have you been to his place? I, have, yes. I said I'm not going to do the sliding board, but you are. You're going to do it. I'm. And he did. He he slid down that thing. But why would you have a sliding board? Only Dabo would do that. His players love him, and they play their guts out for each other and for him. Uh, so it's magic. And yeah, I am very proud of him because he's his values. He. He, he teaches his Christian faith by the way he lives, but he also teaches football and about getting along. And he makes the hard calls. That quarterback call he made, that's as hard as it gets. And then Saban does a, a similar thing with his quarterbacks. And all of the quarterbacks have responded, very, I think, very maturely. Even the one that's transferring did it in a class way. And those guys have been trained, and they're, get, they're getting ready for life. With that, getting ready for life, one thing that I always really enjoy focusing on is words of wisdom. And that can be phrases, mottos, quotes, or just life advice. So do you have any words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you that you'd like to share? Yeah. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. That's the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is just like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. That would be my advice. It comes from a much greater source. Well said. Coach Curry, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast and allowing me to step inside your office. It's a true memorabilia room. That is obviously an Uh, It's been an honor. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Rich. Thank you.
You never know what opportunities you might miss if you give up on something too early and not persevere through difficulties. And it's those times when things seem too hard to continue that develop strength in all of us. And as Coach Curry's life changed the day he pushed through his desire to quit, but we must also understand that there's a balance that we have to seek in that drive to succeed so you don't miss the truly important things in life. Now that finishes episode 99. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 